Hello and welcome to Everything Interesting Under the Sun. I'm your host, Ethan Clark. Today, we have the magnanimous Marcus Smith joining us. Marcus is the head golf coach at Pima Community College, where he holds the title of the youngest college head coach in NJCAA history at only 20 years old. On top of this, Marcus is also an author. He wrote his first book in 2020 titled Dream Big Live Larger, where he recounts his inspirational coming-of-age story. Now I could go on listing his achievements, but you get it. The man is accomplished. Marcus, how have you been, man? We haven't seen each other in a long time. Ethan, man, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Let's get right into it. Let's so do it. I know you. I've, we, we've known each other for quite some time now. We're probably around, it was like 10 years, it's 8 years around there? Ten, I don't think it was 10 years. 10 years? Okay, we'll go with that. But me being friends with you this whole time, I've really seen the progression of Marcus Smith. And... To be honest, you were not the most, like, you were at the top of your class. You were, like, the most well-rounded person. But then, fast forward 10 years from now, you are the head coach of a Pima Community College. Like, I already mentioned this in the introduction. You have your own book. You're doing many other things. Like, where in your life did you decide to take a turn and decide to do something better with your life? Hmm. Do you know you're right? Uh, <laughs> from... When you knew me, when you met me, well, we had to be in 7th, 8th grade, uh, there was, I feel like I was just, just a kid, just like living. Like, wasn't trying to do anything, wasn't trying to do anything special, because I didn't know anything else. Um, like, my per, my family never, like, they didn't accomplish anything. So it was like, when I grew up, it was like, there, were, there wasn't, and not to say you didn't have a role model, but there wasn't anything to aspire to be, because nobody was anything. So me just going to school and doing nothing and like playing baseball and thinking I was going to go pro one day was just normal. Um, definitely wasn't top of my class at anything at any level. Um, wasn't you know what you know for a, a minute a good athlete. You know we we all thought we were going to go <laughs> pro though. Um, but once you get that realization that you're not going to go pro, it's like all right, you're not the best athlete. Now what? Um, and I don't know. I would think um, the majority of that from eighth grade to junior year when when we knew each other, I would say that junior year, that's when it kind of changed. I think it was the group of people I surrounded myself with. Um, in the beginning of high school, I think everybody's always so focused on, I got to be cool. I can't stand out. I can't do, can't do, you know, goofy stuff. You can't be yourself ultimately. Uh, and that's, that's kind of a crime on, you know, just allowing kids to live their life so junior year i remember i started the club mad making a difference and you were a part of that you were a part of that process big time and i remember this is what i distinctly remember about starting mad is i remember going and texting people i was afraid of how it would be perceived of like i wouldn't be the cool kid anymore i wouldn't be i'd be you know somebody you know, a try hard for trying to, to trying to do something that I wanted to do. But at the end of the day, there was so much support that I was like, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm just going to do it. And, you know, 
like you know obviously you know mad was just a a creation that we just wanted to do better for people just make people happier do better for our community and our school and that put me in my first leadership position outside of sports that put me in the first position where people looked to me and depended on me for their own knowledge their own guidance their own you know what are we doing and they would look to me so that kind of provided with the first leadership experience where I where I was in a position to make decisions and I have to tell you that position is addicting I mean getting in that position where you get to make the decisions and not to say that I I'm right and this is one thing that I tell our, our my staff is I don't care about being right I care about going to bed with the right answer that's a key thing that we run with our program because I don't I don't care about waking up and thinking I know everything I don't and nobody is but the fact that we can talk and everybody can chime in and at the end of the day we have the right answer that's what we're focused on but kind of back to the leadership you know that's an addicting role because you get to make you you make your own rules you make I mean you're creating your own destiny and I mean your destiny and your path has a lot to do with the people that are following you it has a lot to do with your friends that are with you everybody's lives are intertwined and we saw that clearly with mad but that was the first leadership experience that kind of trajected me and uh, really gave me a platform for my voice and really allowed me to think what do I want to do with my life and I would say that leadership position was kind of the turning point now after that it's kind of a you know went to college went to the University of Arizona and obviously you know I uh, I wanted to be a doctor but that did not happen clearly Um, But I don't think it was supposed to happen. One, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason, and there's a good reason for it. But I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. And more specifically, I wanted to be a pediatrics of some sorts. I wanted to work with kids because I worked at the YMCA, and I loved working with kids in our youth and education. And I thought being a doctor could, like, push me to that working with kids and helping and inspiring and leading so my whole family thought I was going to become a doctor for like five years. And uh, that's stressful in itself when they all think you're going to become a doctor. However, then you begin to have like conversations with, with people. And, I, and you're one of those people that I had a, a key conversation with where I just wanted to help people. And I wanted to lead. And I wanted to help education. Uh, I wanted to get into teaching. I wanted to get into coaching. I wanted to do these things. And everybody would go, well, then why doctor? Like you get to do all that. And you cannot go to med school, and you can still do that. And that was that was a that was a realization that I had to come to. And once I made that, you know, then it kind of gave me the rest of not the rest of my life, but it gave me the next five years after Mad and after high school. And um, you know, kind of losing your sight, losing your way again in high school, trying to I mean, in, in college, and trying to find out what you want to do, why you want to do it, what type of leader do you want to be. And then you stumble upon, you know, great opportunities into, into coaching and meeting people that then meeting people and coaching led to the job I have now. But really, it's just been an entire evolution of how I think, who I'm around, what I do, how I act, and who I am in order to get to, like, today's Marcus. And obviously, it's still going to change, but from then to now... I mean, it's a, it's a clear difference, but I think everybody is like, you've changed a crazy amount from, from eighth grade to now, you know? 
I, don't, I mean, continuing off of that, out of all the people I know, you, I think, have transformed your life by far the most. But to take a step back, to go back into history, like, I'm really curious about what was the reason that you started MAD? Why? Because I was quite out of the ordinary for the Marcus Smith that I knew to go out and start a club relating to making a difference. Like, where, where did that idea get inspired from? Why did you decide upon doing that? Um... Let's see. Oh, I've got, and I'm, I, I've, I know. I when you were asking me that, I was like, where did it come from? I know exactly where it came from. So, uh, in, in high school, we all ran for student government, right? And um, I was so I, I enjoyed politics in the sense that I thought I could make a change, and I thought I had a, I thought I could speak well, and I thought I could re- relay my information in a fashionable way, in a, in a really kind of powerful way that would impact other, you know, people our age and younger people. So we, I ran for student government, which you also ran that same year too. You got in and I didn't. <laughs> um, but to kind of carry on with that story, ran for student government and it wasn't a big deal, but I just thought this was the first thing I kind of set out for that was out of the ordinary. That wasn't sports. That wasn't just doing my normal stuff. So, um, you know, ran and did that campaign and I'm not going to lie to you, ran a great campaign. <laughs> um, and what was it? It was 10 minutes before they called the names of who won. And I was called into an office and I was disqualified. <laughs> I was disqualified from the race um, 10 minutes before they announced the winners. So I was like, shit, what do I do now? You know, like I, I really thought I could do it. I knew I could win. I knew I was I could be that person for for just people. And it didn't happen. So after that, you know, I, and I'm very religious and you know that would that was at the time where I was starting to find my faith. I think yeah, junior year was the time where I was starting to go to church, you know, every Sunday, um, you know, I was starting to practice and you know, religion was a big part of my life and it still is. And I got home that day and I was like, well, now what? You know, and I specifically remember thinking, because one, I was embarrassed to tell my family that I that I had gotten disqualified because <laughs> I used because, because I used social media to enhance my campaign, which makes me think I'm gonna be a very good politician one day because <laughs> I've already cheated one campaign. I'm gonna do you know, I'll be a great politician. You're bound one day. for it, man. Um so obviously I'm embarrassed to tell my family. And I'm thinking, now what? Because this isn't going to work out. So I remember going to bed and I remember going, God, if this isn't the plan, that's okay. But give me a plan. Like give me something to sink my teeth into. Give me something to do. Um, Because I I just wanted to do something. I was never just a, a kid that wanted to just go to school. I never just wanted to just be an athlete. I wanted to do more. And I was, I was just trying to break through in my own little shell. So I remember asking, you know, God, like, hey, I need a, I need a plan. And I, I, if this isn't the plan, that's okay, but I need something. And I remember a week later, I just run into class one day, and I believe it's you, another one of our friends, Angel. Um, I, I kind of forget who was in that class, but I, I remember specifically you two. And I run in there, and I go, I, got the, I have this great idea. I have this great idea. And, you know, you guys are listening, but obviously it's in the morning, and we're all kind of you know, messing around. So we're not really listening, but I, I was like, I have this great idea. I just want to, I, I want to find a way to help people. I want to find a way to, to, you know, 
create togetherness. And the, and the real reason is because when I was campaigning for this student government position, I realized how many kids sat alone at lunch. And I was and I went up and I talked to everybody at lunch. I was like, hey, I'm Marcus Smith. I'm, I'm running for this. Vote for me on this day. And I and talked to him for a good two, three minutes. I realized just how many kids were sitting by themselves. I had never known because I was always in my own little circle. And we were always eating lunch together. And we were always with our friends. And obviously I was one of the only outside of basketball friends that was inside of a kind of basketball clique. So I didn't know anybody else. And I saw all these kids were sitting alone at lunch and I thought, this is, this is, this isn't good. Like, and maybe they might be, you know, okay, but maybe they're used to it. But I just, I thought that that was a hard thing to know that you would come to school and be alone while you're eating lunch. When you're in your free time, when you're not learning, you'd be alone. And I just, I, I couldn't bear that. So I thought, how can we bring a community together? How can we bring a campus together? How can we just bring people together? So, you know, I remember thinking, how can we do that? How can we do that? And I thought, well, the only way we could do that is I, I've got to take a position and I've got to take a stand and we've got to build a community among that idea. And not the idea of, you know, having kids not sit together or not sit alone at lunch, but the idea of just being together, togetherness. And... The idea mad popped in my head because uh, one of my campaign things was um, my grandmother, who's who's amazing at all, had all of this you know creative stuff, and she's helped me out with every creative aspect of my life so far. Uh, one of the slogans, or the slogan was uh, Marcus A. Smith, because my middle name's Anthony, and it was making a statement. So we just flipped out the the S and put a D in there, and it was making a difference. And it was mad because, you know, we were – and the idea was we were mad that this stuff was happening and we were mad that, that kids were sitting alone. We were mad that this is what society is, is doing and this is what education looks like. So all in all, it, it came from a failed opportunity, which I say opportunity next to failed because it's always an opportunity after that. Um, you know, it came from a failure that turned into an opportunity uh, you know, uh, a setback that turned into a lesson. And then I learned that lesson by it and didn't know that that was the path I was supposed to be on. Started mad and it grew to be the largest club in like a span of one month. We didn't even have enough seats for the amount of kids in the classroom. Every Monday we would meet and talk about a different idea or a task that we wanted to tackle with the community. You know, we adopted two families and I remember this specifically because student government adopted one family, and I thought we'd be cool to adopt two families. <laughs> they had to one-up them, huh? They had to one-up them. And we, we were the largest club, and we did a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things. We had a loan no more where we, where we went out and we had kids sit with other kids and meet them and invite them to their group for lunch so we could kind of eliminate sitting by yourself. We partnered with a, uh, with an organization to feed the homeless. We you know, we just did a bunch of bunch of random things that kids wanted to do. And my idea was this was going to be a platform for people. This wasn't me saying, "Hey, look at me, I do this." This is more so, "Hey, I'm going to provide you a platform that you might not have. So I want you to come do this and speak your mind and use me as your platform. And then that hopefully you get to find your way just like I found my way. So. That's kind of the idea of MAD and why it started. It was a great year. I think it is actually still going on as we speak. The club, yeah, it's not as big, but if they're still making a difference, who cares? 
Uh, but they are still running running hard at Deer Valley High School, what, five years later, four or five years later. So that's still going on. That's quite the accomplishment. I definitely applaud you for that. One being because, again, that is very out of the ordinary to start a club. Like I spoke with this topic to someone earlier, and like starting a club in high school, that's like, why are you doing this? Like I'm saying in yeah. hindsight, like, why are you doing this? This is so out of the ordinary. You are weird. Like you're not, yeah. nobody else is starting a club, so why are you starting a club? And then you go out there and do it, and it becomes successful. Like, that is that is very cool. I really applaud you for that. But you think about that, and the messed up part is that, and not that I experienced this, because one, I had a great friend group, and great great support everywhere, and and I was friends with a lot of people, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like I, I was a I was a cool kid. Like I wasn't a popular popular kid. Where if I did something, it was like, oh, he's not popular. I mean, I was friends with. Popular, unpopular, everybody. I was just friends with everybody, and I made friends with everybody. So I had a lot of support. But the messed up part that I'm getting at is isn't that terrible that if you want to do something, you have to worry about public opinion of whether you look weird, stupid, uh, you don't know what you're doing. The idea of failure, you know, if, if this failed, think about what people would then think about me. Like, oh, Marcus, yeah, you're, I remember that kid. He tried to do something and failed at it and laugh. Like, that's tough because we are limiting the youth's and education's potential to grow and be creative. And that's terrible. I mean, I think that's kind of just ingrained in, like, humanity. Like, you're just concerned with how other people view. It doesn't necessarily have to, like, obviously it is exacerbated by the environment of high school, but regardless of there being high school, like, we are still going to be concerned yeah, with people judging you. Like, that's still that. an end result. But it seems like tying this all back to your progression in life like mad seems like there's a lot of parallels between this and then taking on a coaching job what is the parallels that you see like what is what have you learned from starting a club namely mad and then transferring that to being a coach like how like what things do you take with you from that um okay i'm gonna be i'm gonna be really honest with you right here i'm gonna get lay you in on a little head coaching secret we are professional talkers. That's all we are. Like, one, we don't get out there and play the sport, right? Like, everybody thinks that since I'm a golf coach, I play golf 24-7. Not even close. I might play golf um, once every couple months, so I don't play the sport. Wait, can I pause you? I just want to yeah. I just want to say, like, this is something we didn't mention, but it's, it's super funny how you and I started, like, you played golf a year before I did. Yeah. And, like, I started playing golf my junior year. You started playing sophomore year, I, I'm a, if I remember correctly. And it's hilarious to see my path with golf and then your path with golf, like, how that all came <laughs> We <about>. both started. <laughs> both started playing, and one took on a career in golf, and one completely it let golf terrible go. terrible at golf. It's a, it's a progression of life, man. It's a reality. But, yeah, continue with fun, your story. I, I, I'm um, sorry for interrupting. But... We are we are professional speakers. We just do it for our own group. And what Mad taught me was how to talk in front of a group, how to portray and how to how to use my words for power and how to use my words for good. So, you know, anybody on the side of the street can say something, right? And most of the time you're going to be like, I don't care what that guy says, right? But but there's something different when you can say something and you get people to care about it. Where if I talk right now and somebody goes, I need to listen to that. That is a skill in itself. One, you got to have the resume and you, you just have to be you know, a, a person of interest. But also the idea to capture 
the hearts and minds of student athletes. And, and I mean, that's like recruiting, recruiting. We go into these, you know, these kids homes and we sell them on our school, on ourselves. You know, I, I always tell, tell our kids, you know, we're, you're not committing to the school. You're committing to myself. You're committing to what we're going to do for you in the long run, what we're going to do, the resources we give you. So it's all about talking. I mean, really the business is 100% about speaking. So the parallels, one, are Mad really taught me how to talk. And I know that sounds stupid, but it taught me how to speak in a very intricate way and a very elaborate way to convey a message. And coaching is just doing that, but putting a goal at the end of it, you know, a national title, a region championship. How can we get from point A to point B? How can we get from here to a championship? And it's all about talking and speaking and really letting them understand what we're doing. And obviously, you know, teaching our fundamentals and making sure they're sound in the sport that they play. But outside of that, it's all about communication. So Mad taught me about communication, but it's also a leadership role where I also, once again, now have, you know, student athletes looking to me in their life. And it's not as big as Mad. You know, if somebody quit Mad, you know, they're going to continue doing their own thing. It's not like they needed me for success. And not to say that our student athletes need me for success, but we are building a platform where if they play the right cards and they do the right things, they can be successful because of what we're going to do for them. And, you know, it's a two-way street. They give us 100%, we give them 100%. And that idea has, has really ingrained the responsibility of both. The responsibility of MAD and adopting two families for Christmas and knowing that if you don't achieve this goal, there are two families out there that won't have a Christmas. That's a heavy responsibility to take on. Also, now you have, well, if you don't get money, if you don't fundraise, if you don't, if you're not a great role model, you're not, uh, you're not doing your job, well, you're going to fail these athletes in their own life you know these athletes have have committed a part of their own life to me and to our program that's a heavy responsibility because if you fail i mean you're impacting kids lives um you know you do something stupid you don't show up for stuff you you set the wrong example you're impacting student athletes lives and not even student athletes because i think you know one they're way more than athletes but also i think i'm way more than just a coach i'm here for students i'm here for academics so the idea that responsibility was really taught and mad and taught and coaching, and then you put them together, and there's a weight there there there's a weighted responsibility that both intake, and if understanding that has really really benefited from understanding the responsibilities I had at Mad, and so carrying that over, I mean it's been an easier transition than what it would be if I didn't have Mad. Definitely seems like you look at your your uh, players as not just players but like family members like you want the best for them oh no doubt no doubt they are i mean i I will i send a i mean there's one thing that we say in the program and it's i love you like that that's one thing we 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 love each other um our boys are a men's team um they play for the region championship in two weeks and the last probably two months have been nothing but love. It's we want to get here and we want to grind and we want to motivate each other and we want to be determined. But at the end of the day, we love them. So, you know, when when they're having a hard time, we don't talk about golf. We talk about, you know, relationships. We talk about schoolwork. We talk about life. We talk about how can I help you in this in this journey. And and they know that that's out of love. 
because I do love them. Um, our women's team just came back from Texas for their district championship, and you know they had a gr- they had a very successful season. And even that, that's all about love. We do this because we love these kids. We do this because we love what we do. And you know, if the, if these athletes, students, they need anything, they come to us first. That's what that's what we tell them. You need anything, you come to us because one, you know, if it's we're gonna treat you as if you're our athlete, but at the end of the day, we're gonna treat you like you're our kids. And you know, they're they're my brothers, they're my nephews, they're my my cousins, they're my family. So when we when we take these trips, it's all about trust. And you know, when we're gonna go into our region championship, and when we qualify for our national championship, you know, I've got to know who can I trust to go out there and win. Who can I trust? And that's not saying anything bad if I don't play a kid. That doesn't mean I don't trust him. You know, entirely. That just means in the moment, you know, we we can't trust that you're going to go out there and produce. Doesn't mean I don't love you though. Still love you. But that trust is also love. That that's that's I love you enough to have you into this program. That's that's my life, and this program is an extension of me. And you're going to be in this program, and you're going to nourish it, and you're going to be there, and you're going to play in it, and you're going to you know plant your seed of success in this program so we do everything out of love you know i love my assistant coaches i love i love you know our supporting staff you know our athletic director jim monaco i love i love them all so we heavily run a program based on the idea of family and love because we we don't want it to feel like you know you come to play for us and it's it's a it's a military boot camp and there's some programs that work like that that's fine but there are some that don't and there are some that want it and there's some that don't. Uh, we had a kid come over from Odessa Community College or o- Odessa, Texas, and he explained that, you know, there just wasn't really a relationship between coach and player. And, you know, obviously this isn't, and I'm not saying that there isn't because there might be and it might just be his perception of it, but that's not how our program works. You know, I have a, I have a very close relationship with every one of our players whether we get along, whether we don't, whether we talk about sports, whether we talk about golf, whether we talk about relationships, whether we talk about video games, we talk about comic books, movies, whatever we talk about, we find a common interest because we want to know, we want to make sure everybody knows that they've got a place where they're loved, they can go be successful, and they can flourish, and they can be great. Uh, and I think that greatness starts with having that love and support. Now, not everybody has it, but if we can offer it, why not? So, I mean, we, we run kind of everything based on that idea of family and love and loving our players and loving ourselves too. You know, we got to, at the end of the day, you got to go to bed knowing that you're doing the right thing. If you're not, that's going to impact your, your season, your success, your love. So, yeah, we, we pretty much run everything based on that idea of love and family. That was very beautiful. I can uh, <laughs> surely say that I would love to be a part of uh, your team. Sorry, that was a bad joke. I just do you want to do you want to come play for us? <laughs> I might I might try out my golf career again once more. Try out the golf career. But um, one thing that has been looming on my mind is how did you manage to become a golf head coach with only three years of golf like playing in your or under your belt? Because um, obviously, as you mentioned, you are not the best golf player. You probably do not know everything there is to know about golf. So how do you go about coaching these kids that probably haven't played golf longer than you even ever touched a golf club? Yeah, no. That's like, um, well, one, when I started my, so I started freshman year, but I didn't join the team till sophomore year. And uh, I progressed 
really, really quick for never having played golf. Um, and then just being around good golfers has always taught me about golf and taught me, you know, the in-betweens, the types of shots, the mentality, the leadership ability. Um, so to kind of answer your question is I didn't like, I didn't ask to be a head golf coach. Like I, I never went through my life going, oh, I want to be a college head golf coach. And that's not saying I don't enjoy what I love or what I do because I love what I do and I wouldn't trade it. But I didn't ask for this job. Hell, I didn't even apply for this job. I was put into this job. And it was like, well, this is a great opportunity. And I know enough about golf right now where I can learn a lot. I mean, my golf IQ from when I started the job till now is way, you know, it's different. I'm around it 24-7. I'm around high-level golfers. I mean, coaching is different. You know, we can genuinely go out there and coach the best best athletes in the country. Two years ago, probably not. But now we can. You know, that's because, one, I'm always able to adapt and learn. And I think that's one of the biggest things is you've got to be able to adapt and learn. And if you want to be the best at what you do, you're going to learn it. And uh, whether it's a golf coach, a teacher, a doctor, whatever it was, I was going to want to be the best at it. So, you know, when it comes to golf, you know, I didn't ask to be put in this job. I didn't, I didn't even want this job, you know, in hindsight when I was in high school or college. Um, and it's an absolute blessing that I have this job and I have this opportunity. But I more so look at it as in I didn't ask to be put in this situation. God put me in this situation to do something else. And that means, you know, yeah, are we playing golf? Absolutely. Are we trying to win a national title playing golf? 100%. But there's other life lessons that I can give these kids outside of golf. There's other mindsets that I can teach them. Uh, there's a way of life that I can teach them and every student at Pima without golf. So is it, is it a golf job? Absolutely. But in real reality, it's, it's a leadership job. It's a teaching job. Um, I see myself as more of a teacher than I do a coach. So, and I, and I think most coaches are going to tell you the same thing. You're more of a teacher. You know, when we're out there, we're teaching you a mindset to go win. We're teaching you a mindset to go out there and grind. You know, if you are, and we're going to start talking, like I'm going to start getting into golf lingo. But, you know, if you are, if you're two up in a tournament and you've got your brothers out there and the team score is dangling on four or five over and we need you to go out there and play the last four or five holes uh, at a par level or better you know you got to be able to go and dig down and find that and if you're not feeling the the mechanical or technique of your swing is not there it doesn't matter you've got to go out there and be able to play par golf on your worst days so it's the idea that we're teaching them how to be men how to be women how to be you know, grown adults, how to solve problems, and how to be successful at what they want. So the golf experience, obviously, in the beginning was a bit hard because, you know, obviously I came into it with, you know, knowing enough to get by, but you can't be the best just knowing enough to get by. You have to know way more of it. So, I mean, that that's when I hit the books. I hit, I, I you know, my players, my first year coaching year was all about me learning how to coach. And this year, now I'm able to really coach, but I'm still learning how to coach. Um, and just like our players are still learning how to play, are you know, I mean, in any situation, you should always still be learning. So I'm still learning how to coach at a, at a very high level. 
And with our athletes, they're such great kids and they're such great athletes that they teach me something every day. And hopefully I teach them something every day with our, you know, many meetings in my office or meetings on the course or just playing and our trips together. So I'm always learning, but the experience was, it was tough at the end, at the beginning, but now it's something that I don't necessarily think about a whole lot. Um, I think one with our record and, and our success that we've had in such a short amount of time, I think we've proven that one, you can learn it on the go, but also I think we've just proven that what, you know, we, we've got a great coaching staff. We've got a great program and what we, what our vision is, is good. So I don't ever think about that. However, I do often think about kind of referring back to the whole, I didn't ask for this and God put me into to it. I do kind of go back to the idea of, you know, there's something more to this job than golf. You know, there's something more to teaching these kids and being a part of a unit or a college than golf you know there's there's more to this than playing a little sport and i don't mean to sound like our sport doesn't matter because it does because it teaches life lessons and it's great but there's more to this life than golf and i think that's what we're kind of you know that's what me personally what i'm kind of going through is what what is more what does that look like what does coaching look like beyond golf Uh, and what what does that look like for our players what does what does a successful you look like without golf you know that that's another question we ask. So the experience, not that not that big of a deal, but it does come into play, and it does get me to ask other questions about what I want to do in that regards. You mentioned that golf is not end all be all, and that you're teaching them life. Like, what is? Can you summarize what is aside from golf that you try teaching them in like a a short little two liner? I know that's pretty difficult for two lines, but good lord, you, <laughs> you you want to sum up the idea of life in two lines? No, just what is what is the thing um, that you try to hammer home when you're with your players? Um, I I would say the idea of leading by example, and and I wish I could phrase this in a better way because this is so cliche, but just being the best version of you at any given time. And that's like, and my dad always used to tell me, you know, I, I don't care what you do, but if you're going to go be a janitor, you better be the best best janitor on the planet. And that kind of stuck with me. And that's what we try and teach our, our kids. You know, golf is great, but if you have a C in a class, you're not being the best version of you in, in academics. And I get it that some of them might, might have other goals in, in tech that might not have to do with academics and that's Okay. But it all reflects. And we just want them to be the best versions of them. We want to teach them healthy relationships. We want to teach them communication. Uh, But really, we want to build productive people in society. And that kind of all just sends back to just being a good person, leading with your heart, and and chasing greatness. That I, I would probably say everything I just said revolves around the idea of chasing greatness. And we, we run that with our program is Chasing Greatness. So that way our, our athletes and students and staff are always chasing something. We don't want our athletes to ever be content with life, with content with, oh, I, you know, I make $40,000 or, oh, I live in a two-bedroom house or, oh, I live in an apartment or, oh, I drive this car or, oh, I, you know, have, a, I have an okay relationship with my mom and dad or, oh, I have an okay relationship with my girlfriend or wife. Uh, you know, we, we don't want anything to be just average. And, and I kind of listed a couple materialistic ideas. And not to say that we emphasize on you need to have a great house, you need to have a – but we want you to strive for whatever, in your opinion, is great. 
So in my my eyes, you know, I always try and, you know, preach the relationship side of things. You know, make sure your relationships with your parents are healthy because I think like you and I had talked a couple months ago and like when you really think about the amount of time you get with your parents after you move out, it's not a lot. Like I, I like the last time I saw my parents, I'm pretty sure it was about two and a half, three months ago. So you take that into a year, what am I seeing my parents? Maybe four or five times a year now? Okay, now, and I saw this on a video, and now if my parents are, and luckily my parents are young, but you know anything can happen, but say my parents are 60 years old. I mean, that's four times, three times a year. You know, they've, they've only got another 15, 20 years. I mean, that that's a low number amount of times I'm gonna see my parents, considering I get 365 days a year. So making sure our, our, our kids' relationships are strong, and those are chasing greatness. Making sure that whether it's golf, academics, whether it's, you know, we've got kids that are in engineering programs, kids that are uh, in, in music programs, making sure that you're not just being average, you're chasing this greatness. And you might never get to the greatness because even I'm chasing greatness. And, and I don't mean to sound like I'm like tooting on my own horn or anything, but what we're doing is great. I don't consider it great though. I think what we're doing is just the next step from what I was doing. But in reality, there's no other 22-year-old doing what, what I'm doing. Could they? Absolutely. But even this right now is not considered great greatness. So there's always the what's next. There's always the we're going to be amazing at this job, but now what? You know, that you can't be content. You can't settle. So, you know, that kind of just idea about just life itself um, – is what we teach. But I want to say one thing that, that I really teach, and I think I'm a little different on this aspect, is, you know, there is obviously more to life than golf. But we, I really try and teach our kids the ideas of, of the beauty of life and letting them see the beauty of life. You know, the, our, our athletes come to practice all the time stressed out. Okay, and they have every right to. But think about life in the sense that the sky is so beautiful today. It's a, it's a bright blue day. Nothing gets better than that. You're healthy. You're living. Uh, you know, what are you going to eat tonight? Are you going to go make some burgers with, with the team? Are you going to go out to In-N-Out? Are you going to go to Texas Road? Are you going to go get a good dinner? Are you going to go eat Top Ramen? There's a beauty in all of it. So getting our athletes to kind of understand the beauty of life is also another kind of lesson we're actively trying to teach and go about our own life. Um, you know, just the idea that we, we have a brotherhood, we have a, a sisterhood with our women's program, we have, um, you know, this family idea. That's something to be grateful for. And the idea of travel. I tell all of our athletes, go and travel. And I might be a little off on this because I know some coaches are like, you need to be here, you need you need to be here in the summer workouts. I'm a different kind of coach, and, I, and I'll admit that. Uh, I, I encourage our athletes to take two, three months off. You know, get your work in still. Go to the course, record some, record, you know, 18, 18 holes worth of scores for, you know, two times a week. Absolutely, get your work done because that's what we got to do and we still have goals. But at the end of the day, when you're not golfing, go travel. Like, go somewhere uh, and let me know how it is. Go, go drive up the West Coast and go find yourself. Go, don't just be a golfer. Don't just be a student be a person, be someone that's living. And I really preach to our athletes when they come into my office and they're kind of lost and they're asking, you know, I, 
I, I need to find purpose or I need to do this. And, and I've had many of those conversations in the last two months with almost all of our athletes about finding purpose. I tell each and every one of them to one, go read certain books and I give them all my copy of the version of the book and they read, they bring it back and then I tell them to go travel. And obviously we're in season, so they can't do it right now. But I say, you know, once we're done, book a trip, go to California, go out of the country, go to Montana, go to Washington, D.C., go to anywhere, go to Texas, go somewhere and find a little piece of yourself in that state or country and that ocean and bring it back. And let, let's start to piece together who you are because we're not just going to find it in golf. We're not just going to find it in my office. You know, let's go out there. Let's let's explore. Let's be people. Let's be true travelers. So uh, that that's a big portion of the life that I do try and teach as well, is that there's more to the life and about the beauties of life. Um, and like I said, 90% of it is not even about golf. It's about just life and how to be a better person. How can we be good people at the end of the day? Yeah, you're, you're very reasonable with the expectation of what you're of like what you want from these kids. Like it, they are playing golf for you, but at the end of the day, they are still people that have their own lives. Like their golf is not revolve like golf does not revolve or their life does not revolve around golf. But I have to point out that you most definitely failed to my request of answer that question about two oh, lines. Oh, I you needed two lines. By, like, that was <laughs> probably half a, half a million. I'm gonna say. Here's but, here's my two lines. Go travel. Period. Live life. Period. That's, uh, that's good two lines. I like it. What would you say the beauty in golf is? The beauty in golf is how fragile it is. Uh, like, you know, we and, and we we have had this all season long. This has been one of our problems. You can have a great round going. You can be four under through sixteen, right? And you can duck hook it left off the off the tee box, and you can go OB out of bounds. And you can get a double bogey on the on let's say seventeen, okay. So you're four under. Now you're two under, right? So four under in co- collegiate golf at the junior college level is is a good lead. I mean you, you're you're pretty much in the lead at that point. But two under is not. Two under is relatively close to where all the other guys are going to be, okay. So sixteen holes, about four and a half hours. You've played amazing golf. And within 25 minutes, you can ruin everything. You can go from being one to losing it in one hole. And it's all based on one swing. And you take about, you know, the, the, our, our golfers are going to take about 68 to 76 swings per round. And if you have one bad swing, now you can capitalize, and that's another thing we teach is is being able to minimize the mistakes, minimize the damage, understanding how to get out of trouble, understanding how to, you know, how to play with adversity and making sure that that one shot doesn't define you. And that's true, and, and, it, and it won't ever define you because you can still have a great round and go OB. However, what I'm saying is, is, and this is what the beauty of it is, is if you're on 16, 17, 18, there's not a lot of time left. So you better make sure you are finishing that that round. Because if you double bogey, triple bogey 18, 17, or 16, you don't have 10 extra holes to get that back down. Now, if you double bogey or bogey hole number one or two, you have 16 holes to correct that mistake. So you can be four under going into 16, double bogey 
17, double bogey 18, and then now you finished even. You went from winning the entire tournament to finishing in 5th or 6th, 7th place within two holes of an 18-hole round. And I think that's different because, you know, one, it's an individual game and it's all on you, and we we still play the team sport. You know, your team score, your score impacts the team, so you got to make sure you're grinding for your brothers out there and your sisters. But it's so fragile that one shot can change everything. And, and I know that's the same for other sports, but I don't think it's that drastic in other sports. I think you still have the opportunity to. Now in golf, yes, you can go out of bounds and you can have the greatest third shot of your life and still par it. However, even with the greatest shot of your life, you're still looking at bogeying the hole. So you're still going to take a negative on a positive, right? In football, if somebody intercepts the ball in the air, you have full capabilities of getting a fumble. You have full capabilities of getting the next interception. You have an opportunity. There's there's not a negative until they score on your interception, right? Like they have to do they have to do a lot on their end to capitalize on that interception. And uh, in, in my opinion, I think basketball, if you miss a three, if the other team gets the rebound, goes down and makes a three, you miss that three, that, that hurts you. But if they miss that three down there, isn't it still the same thing as if you didn't just miss that three? It's, it pretty much cancels itself out. So you're really basing it on your opponents to capitalize on a mistake. In golf, you have to save yourself from the mistake rather than letting somebody else not capitalize or going back. So it's just it's just a very fragile game, and it can be so easily uh, – you can easily go from good to bad, and you can easily go from bad to good and good to great. So the levels are just very easy to go in between to, and they're very easy to drop off from. So I'd say that's kind of the, that's the beauty of golf. And, and when you do have a really good round, there's no better feeling in the world because you knew you worked for about six hours on that masterpiece. And when your team can look at you and, and and say good job because you're the leading scorer on the team, I mean that that's that's a seven eight hour day of success. Uh, you know it's one of the longest sports out there. So you know our, our athletes work all day to bring home a good round. And if they do that, that's that's the beauty of it. When you paint it like that, as in everything you do is dictated by yourself, that really is effective in life like your life is at the end of the day dictated by you and what you want to do you're like you're not just following along with what your team is doing of course there are environments in which you have a team and they can dictate what you do but at the end of the day you are in control of your life and I think the way you painted golf like that is very that's very powerful in using that in your day-to-day life because once again you're in control of your life so you dictate what you want to do but changing topics Going away from golf and coaching now, let's get into more of a philosophical realm. You mentioned a little bit about some of your books that you hand to your teammates, but for you specifically, what books have made the most impact on you? Um, let's think, let's think. Uh, ben Carson's Gifted Hands I thought was amazing. Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights was amazing. Uh, Miracles We Have Seen, completely forgot who wrote that. That was a really good book. Um, Coach K's Leading with the Heart was a great book. And all of them kind of taught just different 
small lessons throughout that really impacted how I thought. And I think when you can read a book that you can gravitate towards, I mean, in my opinion, I'm just not a big fan of nonfiction. Just because I have a hard time being able to compare my life and, and what's going on. Or fiction, my, my bad, fiction. Um, I have a hard time comparing you know, a, a Lord of the Rings book with my life. So I have that problem where I don't really read fiction and I don't really read you know, different types of worlds and stuff and sci-fi stuff just because I, I don't think it correlates with my life. However, I do have a player that has told me to read one of these books and it got him to question his entire purpose in reality and I thought, wow, that's a fictional book. I think there there are probably books and and even like movies you can learn a lesson from a fictional movie too. You know, it's like Disney and Pixar. Like they teach the greatest lessons in their movies, and they're not real movies. They're not real people. They're they're you know they're a bunch of germs and in Inside Out or like emotions and in Inside Out, and they're uh, you know they're souls from the movie Soul. Like you know they can teach lessons. So that that I'm kind of getting on, getting trying to cross that verge of not reading fictional books and I'm trying to but for the most part all my life I've read nonfiction and biographies and autobiographies just to kind of learn about people and I've always thought like if you have somebody you like why wouldn't you want to learn about them to see what they did to see what you can do to almost emulate their life and and replicate it and think about what they did not that you want to be them but they got qualities in their life that you like you know they they've got the you know they've got the big house they've got the success well I want success i would like the big house how'd they do it oh you did it that way i'm gonna try this way but i'm gonna try and take some of your keys with me so i think it's more of you know just kind of finding out what you like and i in more in my opinion it's more autobiographies and people that have lived and um i think just recently matthew mcconaughey's green lights was amazing just because it showed you know, it, it showed that he didn't reach his peak level of Matthew McConaughey that we all know until he was 30s, which means we're all still so young when it comes to, like, reaching our peak and reaching what, we, what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. So that book was really good, and it talked about travel, and it talked about, you know, just the oddball, you know, life journeys and stuff that I think are always big. And I think you and I, right before this podcast, we kind of talked about, like, you need a story. Like, even if you did the coolest thing ever, you have to have a story to it. Like, there has to be a good story for it to not be worth it, but for it to be something you want to listen to. I mean, a team goes on and wins a national title, and there's no story. It's not that fun. Like, we want the Cinderella story. We want a story where, you know, there was drama, and and we, we like drama. We want the story. So... I think that's a big part of why I liked Matthew's book is because it was it was very story based. Why are you laughing? <laughs> You're referring to him as Matthew as if, as if you guys are on first name basis. We are. Yeah. Okay. We're, keep, keep going. Though. We're keep good going. friends. Uh, so, Mr. McConaughey's book, <laughs> <laughs> Sir Matthew McConaughey, Sir Mr. McConaughey's book. Uh, it was it was one of the best ones I read just because of the travel, the the life experiences, and I think that one kind of. I thought this one reflected my life more than any book I'd read, and I thought this is just a really good one. So I, that one I kind of took took to heart. What books have you read lately? First, before you answer, or before I answer that question, I'm curious what the book that your player read that said that has affected their life. 
Um, they also, they read, I mean, I will genuinely suggest my favorite books. So I gave him Gifted Hands by Ben Carson, which is all about Ben Carson finding his purpose and, and learning that he's great at school, even though he got the lowest grades in elementary school and, and middle school, um, and then became the great neurosurgeon, and the world-renowned neurosurgeon that we all know and ran for president. Uh, and whether you agree with his beliefs or not, I mean, obviously being a neurosurgeon is something pretty spectacular. No, we all don't get to do that. Um, so that book was all about like finding purpose and finding that even if you're not good at something, you can work at it and become great at it. Uh, gave him Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. And each kid that I've given that to always comes back and says that the traveling part was the best part. Him traveling through Europe is like, whoa, I want to do that, right? And they all come back to me and they go, I want to do that. So go do it. Like there's nothing stopping you from doing that. You know, you can do it. So, and Wait, also... if I may. So the question, sorry to interrupt, this is, I like the response. But the question I asked was, what was the book that your teammate gave you? Or that your, not your teammate, your player. Oh, the player gave me. Yeah. Um, hold on, let me look at that one. I have not read it and see if you know anything about this book. It'll take me literally one second to find it. The book is called the 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 Belgariad, I think. The Belgariad by David Eddings. I will definitely look into it. The first that. book is called Pawn of Prophecy. Anytime you can use the word prophecy <laughs> in a book, it's gonna be powerful. You've probably got a really damn good book Ugh. coming our way. So that's the book I have to read. Um, I was supposed to get it before I went to Texas so I could read it on the flight. Did not do that. But I have to read that one. But if it has to do with the prophecy, it's got to be great. you know. So I, I, I've got to read the prophecy book. But kind of just giving them books that, that reflect our own teachings. you know. That way they can hear me say it. Then they're going to read a book kind of reassuring what I said. And then they're going to come back to me and go, whoa, I need to go travel this summer. Well, boom, we just succeeded at, at what, we, what we were trying to teach. So those are kind of the books that I give them. And any time that I read a new book, there's a book called Chopping Wood. You know, we have some of our athletes reading that, and it's just day by day you can chop wood and you're going to get something out of it. That's kind of the idea that day by day you can go to practice and, you know, have a winning day. And you chop enough wood, you're going to be a national champion. So kind of just we, we like to give them books that just kind of reiterate what we're teaching. To answer your question that you asked me about what books I've read recently, before I answer that in depth, one of the things that I've recently picked up, as you were, you were mentioning this as well, but how you only usually read nonfiction and you don't really like to read fiction, that's how I was for the longest time as well. I, I thought reading fiction was just a waste of time. Like if I'm going to read something, I'm going to want to learn from it because if – I'm going to just read a, a story. I can just go watch a movie, and that's a quarter of the, uh, even le- like a fraction of the time spent reading a book. But what I've been doing recently is at nighttime, I read a, I read a fiction story or a fiction book for like 30 minutes, and then when I wake up, or so the reason I do this is so you go to bed with a creative mind. You start like, you have to formulate these ideas as opposed to going to bed with like a analytical mind. And with an analytical mind, at least for me, what I've experienced is that I go to bed with an analytical mind, and I'm, I never really fall asleep because I'm just thinking about things the whole time. But if you go to bed with a creative mind, you're thinking about all these crazy dreams, like oh, here are these fantasy stories, like that are just so fun. Like that's 
that's what I've learned. And then in the morning, you wake up and you start your day with an analytical book and you learn something in the morning. That's just a, a good win for you to start off your day with, as in you've learned something for the day. Okay, continue that progression onward. To answer your question about the books that I've read or I am currently reading, one that I've just finished reading was an extremely dense philosophical book, but it was just opened my eyes very heavily. It's called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. And this book, it's kind of just, or there's two different books by this author, Anthony DeMello. He's a, a, theo, a theologian or theologian, whatever, uh, like a religious person. The first book I read was Awareness, and this talks about just like, it's kind of hard paraphrasing it because I, like it was kind of hard to even grasp to begin with. It was very uh, like abstract thoughts. But one of the ideas was that like you should never identify with anything because if you identify with something, then you are limited to what that identity brings you. Like for instance, I've mentioned this before, but me going to school and being a student, specifically in a technical field being computer science, it's not a normal thing for me to go and start a podcast. Like that is out of the ordinary thing for me to do. But because I haven't assigned myself a label, I'm not, I'm not anything. Therefore, I can be everything. Like I'm not, I'm not static. I'm fluid. I can just be whatever I want to be. I can do whatever I want to do. And that's because there is no identity. There's no label to me. What I learned from that is you should never like this. This is a social media thing as well. Like people always in their bios, they'll like put some things that they can identify themselves as like, for instance, I don't know if this is your bio, but you could say like, Oh, I'm a coach. I'm a student, all this stuff. Like, yeah, that tells you about who you are. That doesn't really, that gives you like key words to tell you about who you are, but it doesn't really capture the essence of you. And I've always had this problem. Like I've always thought I needed to have like the perfect bio for like social media so people can get an introduction to me. And I've had this discussion with my brother, Andrew, many times. I am of the belief that yes, there's a bio and that is supposed to give you an introduction to who, to who you are. But no amount of words can capture the essence of what it is, like of who I am. Like I can say two sentences about myself, does not tell you anything about me. That tells you, oh, I'm a student, I'm a computer yeah. science, well, yeah, all that. Like that doesn't really mean much. Like I like I don't know. Life is just to go into a tangent. Life is just a very profound and deep thing that no amount of language or words can even begin to communicate somebody's identity. Therefore. You should not even try to identify it, like not even try to label yourself with anything. Your bio is live the life you love, love the life you live. Exactly. It doesn't have no identification. It's just a, a piece of advice I give myself and I run with. My bio is head golf coach at Peabody Community College, and it has the link to my Barnes & Noble book. I mean, to each their own. But another thing, there's another book I read. It was about, uh, I forget the exact title of it, but it's, called or it's by, it's by the author Anthony DeMello again and it's talking about like the what is the most purest form of love like love should not feel as if I am tied to you like if I love you you are not my person like I love you I love it's kind of like you see a sunset like this sunset is beautiful it just makes you happy you love the sunset but the sunset is not yours the sunset is everybody's like me loving you as a friend yeah my friend my love for you that I have is very deep like I it goes a long way but if we were not to be friends again that would hurt my feelings but you're going on and doing your own thing I'm going on my going on and doing my own thing doesn't really like I, I still want the best for you but it doesn't really take any part away from me 
And this goes the same thing with like a marriage. Like your marriage, the purest form of love in marriage is that actually this is a very hard thing to di- to divulge on because I've always wondered what it means to love. This book has given me a little hints at what it means, but I still am not really sure. The thing, continuing on with what I was saying though, like in a marriage, love, it should not be you are mine, I am yours, we'll, we'll never be apart from each other. Like no, it is the acceptance that this person is their own person. They are going to give you their emotions. They're going to open them up to them or open themselves up to you but at the end of the day they are themselves they can do whatever they want and i have that understanding these two books really open my eyes to just the way i conduct my life and lastly another book i read i forget the title of this one this speaks to what you just have been going on about for the past 40 minutes i want to hear what your opinion is on this one of the very very profound things that i read it was a sentence and it said work is the embodiment of love what do you feel about that hmm give me some context on it as in for instance me doing like I'm I'm trying to go down the path of artificial intelligence I'm trying to work in artificial intelligence the reason I'm trying to do that is because I love the idea of artificial intelligence and Obviously, because I love it so much, I'm going to put my all into contributing to this field. And as a result of that, that is just me giving my love to this field of artificial intelligence. I'm just going to characterize you as a golf coach. You're just mentioning love this whole time. You being a coach that is expressing love and leading with love. Like that is your demonstration of showing people your love. Like you are conducting yourself through love. And that is why... Work is love. I'm just assuming this is how I would view it if I were you. I don't, I'm curious okay. what you think, though. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I think I think there's that thing, like, if you do what you love, it's not work. So I think that's true. I think you definitely, you know, you find a hobby that then you realize you can go study it in college, and then you feel like, holy cow, I can actually go get a good-paying job by doing something that I thought was a hobby. I think that is, that's love. Uh, and I think like almost like myself, like I love working with students and I love working with these athletes and I love seeing what we get to do. And I love chasing uh, titles and I love chasing stuff. And so that, so it doesn't feel like work. However, I feel like everybody is going to get to one point in their life where they're going to realize that it just doesn't matter. Like the work that you do as in. Not to say that anybody's work is, is more important or anything, but there's so much more to life than work. And now, like, and let me put it this way. You know, if you are, if you are doing what you love and you've got a, you've got a great family life, you've got a great, you know, just all the other outside things, you're not going to trade any of that outside stuff for your job. You shouldn't. But if you don't have any of that outside stuff, you tend to latch onto your job. Right, because it's it's something that you have. It's comfortable. You love it. So I think once everybody in their lives, I think hopefully everyone is fortunate enough to do this. I think when you find outside things that you love, that's not your job. I think your job becomes even more becomes better, just because you're not. It's not your end all be all. Like my job right now, I love it. I think what we're doing is great. 
but life after coaching still exists and life outside of coaching exists. And I'm not saying you have to have a girlfriend, you have to be married, you have to, you know, have a have a hobby. I'm just saying that if you have another love, you know, if you are if you are a food guru and you get done with work and you just it is everything to you to go home and cook and you make great food and you show it, share it with your friends and you guys come over and, you know, drink a beer, have a glass of wine and cook great food. That is something else to just love life about. That has nothing to do with work. So I feel like when, when people do find that, you know, kind of umph about life, that extraness, I think their work and their productivity gets higher because it doesn't feel like work. And also, I mean, there's other things outside of it. Like, it's just I don't think work should be your end-all, be-all. So I agree with the, I agree with the idea, like the principle, like, you know, what do you say, work embodied? Um, work is the physical embodiment of love. Right? Yeah. Like, I definitely think that, but I think that's only for, for a, a few. When I say that, I'm not saying specifically, like, a career. Like, I'm just saying work as a whole. Like, work could be creating food for your friends to enjoy. Like, that is work at the end okay, of the day. Okay, so, oh, okay. In that case, 100%, I think then, then work can't be defined as, like, you know, what you do to make money. Because I don't think, you know, if I was working at Walmart right now, not that that's a bad job, but just me personally, I wouldn't love working at Walmart. I mean, just like I wouldn't love working. I mean, I wouldn't love to do what you're doing. Like what you do is such a is so beyond my brain capacity on how to think. Like, and not really not so much how to think, but just what you do. I wouldn't love it. So I would hate that. So I think it's just purely dependent on the person on what you love and obviously is work. But obviously, if you're talking about work in the sense of like what you do, not necessarily how you make money, then yeah, I totally agree with that. If it didn't fuel it, why would you do it? You know, like what would what would you be? Why would you be cooking for your friends if you didn't love it? And that is a very like a million dollar question. Why do people do things that they don't want to do? It's because a lot of the times, like the the fad or the hot the buzzword right now is an NPC, a non-player character. Like these people just go about their lives and they just do. Like I'm just gonna pick on a Walmart worker for instance. Like you're doing that because yeah, you need money. I understand that, but. Like, you don't wake up every morning like, oh, yes, I'm going to go to work. Like, I'm sure you wake up every morning like, yes, I get to be a golf coach. I get to teach these kids about life. Like, I wake up every morning, yes, I get to continue on learning about artificial intelligence. I get to potentially advance the field. That's my goal. And, like, the Walmart worker just wakes up, goes to work. And that is, they wake up, go to work, come back, uh, make some, maybe get some, like, fast food, watch some TV. Like, that is their life. And that is... Like, life is so profound that it should not just be a routine that you do. Like, life should never be a routine. Your life should always be variable. It should always just be, like, you should wake up every morning and have no idea what's going to happen. So then do you think, do you think if everybody lived in that type of a way, do you think we would even be able to do what we do? Definitely not, no. It's a, it's a wishful thinking. Like, you still are going to have to have, you have the to. Walmart workers. The, like, I mean, this is like in this current moment yes you need those people but continuing on the path of technological progress that we're going down automation is upon us these jobs as in fast food cashiers and mcdonald or walmart workers like these jobs are not going to be a necessity anymore and that will be like when automation like when this mass adoption of automation comes so many people will be freed up from their vices of having to work for Walmart or having to do all this 
That could even be if you're familiar with uh, UBI. I'm not saying this is a feasible thing. Are you familiar with that? Nope. It's called the uni- like universal basic income. Oh, yeah. And that yeah, is yeah, it's okay. essentially like an, an extension to welfare, like adding more money to that, which it's an interesting idea. I've, I'm not saying it would work or I'm not saying it wouldn't, but with the age of automation coming upon us, like there needs to be novel solutions such as UBI because all these people are going to be out of jobs. They're going to be open up to just do whatever the hell they want. They could potentially become crackheads. Home, there's going to be probably mass homelessness. Like that, UBI fixes, or I'm not saying it fixes that, but it's a, a possible solution. But going back on what you're saying, yeah, the original question, it probably is wishful thinking. Like that, it, not everybody can go and live their life every single day and wake up super happy about what they're doing. Like that's just not possible because I don't want to like sound... Like, I don't know how to phrase this in a politically correct way, but there is definitely like a hierarchy of not necessarily just intelligence, but a hierarchy of like status. Like there needs to be the lower status people so that there can be upper status people. Like in every dimension of life, there is a hierarchy. Like there are hierarchies in the animal kingdom. There's hierarchies in the microbiomes of the world. Like everything is going to come down to a hierarchy. And because of that, there needs to be the people that are at the top and there needs to be the people at the bottom. So the wishful thinking that I'm talking about, like that is kind of going away with the hierarchy. That is claiming that there doesn't need to be a hierarchy, but there always is going to be one. So once again, it is wishful thinking and it's not probably not possible. Deep shit right there. Deep shit right there. (laughs) Moving on to the next question. So what is an uncommon thing that you believe in that, people usually disagree with and that you could potentially get into arguments about? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't really have anything where I'm like going against the grain in the sense of like policy or, or an idea. I think more so I have ideas that other people want to see but since like i would try and just push it more but the only the only thing i'll tell you what i thought of when when you said that the only thing i thought of is i thought of like cancel culture and stuff and like the idea of like that would probably be stuff that i don't agree with where okay i'll, I'll use this one i'll use this one okay so i don't think comedians Okay, no, no, let me just put it this way. I don't think people in general should be held to a crazy accountable with stuff they said prior to seven years ago. Like, if you tweeted something seven years, like, let's go ten years ago, the times were so different that you could get away with saying stuff. And I guess I'm more so just speaking on, like, comedians. Because it's like, reminds me of the Kevin Hart thing or... Like when he said something, uh, you know, 10 years ago and they were like, like making him seem like he was an absolute criminal. I don't think you should be like held that accountable for that. Now, should you like, yeah, say you're sorry and you didn't mean it, but everybody's got to understand that times literally changed. Like in the past four year, four or five years, it got ridiculous where you can't say anything, you're censored, you're not even that you're censored, but just like the idea that people are so sensitive to words and, and how you phrase things. And 
that idea I'm not for. And I think that is just, and that's not me saying that I, I'm not progressive or I'm this or that. I think it's just the idea that we are canceling people or holding people to like this high, like, oh, can't say that. Why well, didn't say it? I said it 10 years ago. That's a very weird line of like, that I don't like. And that I'm kind of wondering, at what point does that stop? And I think that's where people would disagree and go, well, yeah, you should be held accountable for it because you said it and that means you think like that. I don't think that's the case either. I think literally, one, if you're a comedian and you said that 10 years ago, you can joke about whatever you want 10 years ago. Whatever was off, was was nothing was off limits. Now, almost everything is off limits. So I think that would be something that I would probably get into, not an argument, but a disagreement of like, you know, the times have changed. And back then you could say different things, so you shouldn't necessarily be held accountable because society was different. Now, if you say it now, all right, well, you met, you messed up. You got to say sorry because you knew that times are like this and you said that. But you shouldn't be like, oh, he's a terrible person because he said this 10 years ago. I'm sure we all said dumb stuff 10 years ago. I mean, like, so what? You move on, you progress, you learn, you live. So that's probably something I don't agree with, and that's probably like a societal thing that I just don't like and don't agree with and wish that it would kind of veer away from this whole super, super left and super, super right idea and like kind of political way. That's probably one thing I would that I don't agree with that I think a lot of people do agree with that I'd probably get in an argument with. Yeah, this just goes back to the fact of do not identify with anything. Like People are dynamic. Like People are always changing. If I say something 10 years ago, that doesn't necessarily mean I still believe that. Like, that's 10 years ago. It's a long time since then. Like, I could become the most morally sound person. I, I've known people, and I'm sure you probably know people as well, that 10 years ago, they were completely different morals, and now they're just a great person. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. That is, the idea of cancel culture, I think, is ridiculous. One of the, I read an article recently. Uh, I forget the title of it, but it was written by Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist at NYU, and he was he was uh, illustrating the fact that like multiple different studies that the stereotypical far right and the liberal left, like these these only like the the amount of people in these sectors is ten percent in the far left and ten percent in the far right of the normal population, but these ten percent. Are the ten percent that are all in your face and all? I am gonna make show the you my views. Noise. Exactly. So it seems like it's the entire world, but realistically, it's not because the people in the middle just do not care enough to force their views on you, and I, that really I opened my eyes. And that this article is really talking about like the the downward spiral of the United States and how it, it's going to come to a point where we're just so bifurcated in politics that this is just going to potentially lead into a civil war. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that could potentially be down the line. And this is all originates coming back to social media. And I don't want to go on a tangent about social media because I'm sure everybody has their views on social media and I'm sure they all share the same thing. But social media has definitely lit a fire under these people and allows them to spread their voice to the masses and make it seem like they're the whole world and just divide you into these camps and cancel you if they want to or cancel if they don't want to. Like, I don't know. It's a very, it's very trying times we live in right now. It's, 
kind of sad to see the way that we've progressed. And this is all in the past five years. Like, I remember in seventh grade, yeah, everybody had in, like. This is another thing the article mentioned. In seventh grade, I don't know how it was in Arizona, but when I was living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, it was very common for people to be depressed. Like everybody, like specifically the women were very, like very out in the open about cutting their arms. Like that is so sad. But it was like a, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was like a. I don't know, it's just a really sad, but it was a very common thing. And that ties into the beginning of social media. Like, Instagram came around 6th grade, 5th grade, I don't know, in 2012, I don't know, like that's when it became popular. And you have Snapchat, and all these different things provides you with the opportunity to compare yourself to people 24-7. Snapchat, for instance, you see somebody's story. Like, this is a thought I've had many times. This is why I don't use Instagram or Snapchat anymore. You see somebody's story, and they look like they're having fun. But realistically, the only part of the story that they're capturing and the only part of the experience they're capturing is the peak. Like, they're showing you the best of their times. They're not showing you just sitting here in silence and just eating a piece of pizza. Like, that. it's fun, but, like, that, that's not going to make me want to come join you guys. They're just demonstrating the greatest part of the, their night. And seeing that, that's like, oh, why am I not there? I could be having fun with them, but I'm here instead just laying in my bed on my phone or on Instagram. You post a picture, I go to Cancun. Oh, look at him. His life's so cool. He's in Cancun. Look at him. I wish I was him. But that's not your actual life. That is probably 1% of what your life is. There's this new social media I discovered recently. I forget what it's called, but it's in the top charts in the App Store right now. Very, It's combating this idea. It's very cool. I definitely was interested in the idea, and the idea is that throughout your day, it, notifi- it notifies you to take a picture of exactly what you're doing and you need to post that to your network. And if you do not post that picture to your network of that moment, you're not able to see anybody else's pictures. So you need to show people what your life is actually like. You can't just demonstrate, oh, this is my life in its best moments. And that I think is a way to counteract the current culture of social media and and opposition and political part. I don't know, this is, a, this is a completely unrelated thing. I don't know how I got here looking back on it, but. Yeah, here we are. I feel like when I feel like everybody agrees with that, just we're so addicted to it, we're not willing to stop. Like everything you just said, I I totally agree with. Like I, I went through a phase, not really anymore, but I really wanted to delete Instagram and Twitter. But I have this obsession with wanting to be, like never wanting to be normal, and like obviously that involves with. I don't know, the more and more I get with my job and, like, I, I get more in the public eye and I do these radio shows and I do, and I do like, interviews and shit, makes me think, ooh, I'm on the brink. I'm on the brink of, like, getting a blue check mark, or I'm on the brink of getting, you know, an extra 10,000 followers. That alone, and I, and I will admit this, keeps me going. Like, it, and it's not a good, it's not a positive reason to keep going. It's like, ooh, I might get a blue check mark within the next two years. Let me keep going. But then you want to know what really brings me low? And, I will, and I'll admit, I, I don't really ever feel, you know, there's a point in my life, I'd say 2020, 2021, I was at probably the lowest point just because I was so lost. But I'm you know, extremely happy. And so social media doesn't really bother me anymore. But when I was lonely and I didn't have anybody in Tucson and I just got this new job and I was by myself, social media made me lonelier than anything on the planet. I was so lonely. So I think about that and I, and I go, I'm so close to a blue check mark or I'm so close to this or I'm so close to that. 
and is that why I really want to keep social media? Like, this is what I always think about, and this always brings me back to reality. What happens when Instagram is out? Like, it's no longer cool. Now you're the guy sitting there with the blue check mark. Who cares? Like, when that happens, what am I going to do? Continue going on my Instagram, even though it's not cool anymore, and going like, hey, you guys remember Instagram? I'm the guy, I got a blue check mark. You guys remember that? And, like, our kids are going to be like, no. What? We don't use that. It's like MySpace. Like, if like if anybody had a blue check mark on MySpace and they came up to you and they're like, hey, Ethan, look, I'm on MySpace. Come follow me. Why not on the new social media platform? Well, because on this one I'm verified. No. Get, like, what? That doesn't matter. So I will admit I stay on social media for the negative reason of, like, wanting to be get a blue check mark or wanting to have a lot of followers. But I rarely actually look at other people. Like Twitter, I look on for comedy because it's hilarious. I literally just look for like threads that have a lot of people trolling each other and just read them and it's hilarious. And I just, I like try and learn new things or like I, I try and follow positive things. Like I follow like space stuff and, and I mean, not that I know anything about it, but like engineering stuff that I can just like learn a bits and pieces of. So Twitter, I try and just genuinely use for knowledgeable stuff and like try and just either keep my mood fun, laugh at stuff. But I never really, like, I the last time I looked at a tweet from you, I'm not going to lie, I don't even know if you've been tweeting because I don't give a shit. I don't care. And not that I say I don't care about you. I just don't care what any of you are all doing. Who cares? If if you want me to know, you'll call me. Like, if you really did something cool, I, I, I should be expecting a call from Ethan Clark. And, and you do. And if I do something really cool, you should be expecting a call from me. But you shouldn't learn my cool stuff from social media. And if you are, that means we're not that close. Um, but like I stay for a negative reason and I'm not willing to leave social media just because I'm like borderline attached to this like, ooh, I could be have a blue check mark someday, which is a terrible reason in my opinion, but I'm okay admitting that. But it would be nice to know what life would be like without it. I feel like it'd be just a complete just relief of like having to check something. And like, oh, I wonder, or like, oh, I wonder, you know, and, and like I even turned my, I turned my likes off just because I want to give it another reason of why I don't care. Like, I don't care how many people, I don't want to see it and go, oh, this post only got 75 likes or this post got 210 or this post got, you know, 2000 views. I don't care. And I don't want to care. I don't even want to put myself in a position to care. So I turn all that stuff off. I really just try and follow cool stuff that I like, like you know, nice houses, like, and just looking at stuff, getting ideas, food. I love following food. But I couldn't imagine somebody, like, looking at it and going, like, ooh, Ethan did that. Oh, man, I wish I could do that. Or, oh, my God, my friend from high school just got drafted from to the NFL. Oh, man, I wish I could. Like, that would be bad. But if you don't do it, I feel like it's not that terrible. And then you're just kind of the sole people that are out there, like, ah, social media is cool, but I could live without it. But we as a society just aren't ready to let it go. And I feel like we're nowhere close to going back. Because in my opinion, and I think this is where we also differ, you and I, and we've had this conversation, where I don't think technology is the best thing for people. I think we should go back. You know, like the prime years of like early 2000s when you had cars, you had, you know, all the all the great technology, and I'm not saying we'd obviously we had cars in the 90s, but you had like really good stuff. You had your smart devices. You started to get like, you know, computers and desktops. Boom. That's a good point. 
because we weren't consumed with technology, but we still had it where it made our lives easier. Now, like, you go to, like, the 50s and 40s and stuff where pre-technology, like, you have technology, but, like, the majority of people aren't really living off of technology. You're kind of just, that's a good part, but I think I genuinely enjoy technology enough where I'd want to live in it. But this whole, like, 2040 stuff, when we're in 2040, 2050, I'm scared. I'm afraid of that point because I don't know at what point are we going to take technology too far and it's just going to run our lives. So if we're not willing to put down a social media platform, think about what we're not going to be willing to put down in 30 years. That is so true. That actually blew my mind. To think about, like, this is such a... Like, there's benefits to it, but it's really just a leisure activity, like going on social media, Instagram. Yeah. It's all leisure. Whereas, like, what you're saying, I'm just going to hypothesize that this is potentially artificial intelligence, in the spectrum of artificial intelligence. I'm just going to say that because that's my interest. Like... Who knows what's going to come from that? It could be good, could be bad, but the like it'll just make our lives up until a point where it reaches like good or bad. It will make our lives so easy. So to reach the point and be aware that this could either go good or bad, like we are not going to care. We are not going to care. We're just going to go. Oh, this makes our life easier. We can't live without it. Like we we need this, and then this is going to happen. Either good or bad is just bound to happen. Same thing with social media. Like it's been shown to increase like depression and all this all these kinds of things but it's still there it's still prospering and it's kind of crazy to think about because like in the beginning social media was not what it, it's not even nearly as beast that it is now like facebook was simply just to connect people like, just together. to like connect with your family and then now like obviously just the progression of a product or something for consumers is that you're going to try making the most profit off of it and the way to make the most profit off of it is to get the most interactions. And the way you get most interactions is by showing the most controversial things. And that is firing people up and getting them more riled up. And all. Like that is just not a recipe for civi- like civility, I guess. I think, I think we are, I, like I personally, I think we are in, I think we're in still a good part of like human existence. Like, and not to say that in the future we won't be, but we'll probably be in the best part of human existence. But I think that dictates what you think good human existence looks like. Like, in my eyes, everybody's working. Everybody's still being creative. Everybody has enough technology to enhance their life, but you don't need it to enhance your life. Like, Instagram. Like, if you have it, it can enhance your life by entertaining you, but you don't need it. And, like, there are people that show that they don't need it, and they don't. But at a certain point where virtual reality... And, like, people are just, like, so ingrained in it where you, like, you can't live without it and the, the, you don't, you can't distinguish the difference. That's a scary point. But right now, I think we're, I think we're, even though everybody has a negative opinion on everything, I think we're in a really, really good time. One, think about it. You can work any type of job you want. You can work the hands-on construction worker, you know, start your own uh, landscaping company that requires zero technology other than a car to get around and a, and a truck to get your stuff around mowing lawns, pulling weeds. I mean, I've known people that make great livings doing that. That's handwork. That's hard labor. Construction workers go to school, whether you want to be the, you know, the head guy or you just be a worker. That's hard labor. That's handwork. Go home. Boom. You're done. Get on your phone when you're, when you're bored, whatever. Or you've got guys working in like AI that their job is revolved around technology. 
Or like an Elon Musk. My man's life is revolved around technology, where he goes to work in technology, and he couldn't do what he does without technology. However, you can do what you... You could do a bare minimum idea of, of landscaping without technology. So you can really choose how much you want technology to be in your life. Like me as a, a college golf coach, technology is only a part of my life because I really want it to be. Like it doesn't have to do anything with what I, what I do. Like I only want it because hopefully it benefits our athletes, hopefully it benefits myself one day, and it gets exposure out there for the next job or for the next opportunity. But that's because I choose for it to be there. But we live in like a time where you, you can choose if you want technology to be a part of your life or you don't. Like you can have a car, a microwave, an oven, uh, uh, a smart home, a smart TV, and a smartphone, and technology has nothing to do with your life. Or you can have, the, have all those same exact things and technology is your life. So I think we're still in a good point where you get to choose how much you get influenced by it. But I do think the, the, like, the social media being so addictive, that's, that's the bad part. Because imagine if we took out social media right now. Nobody's complaining that cars are too smart. Like, we like that they're getting this way. Like, I think it's genuinely good. Like, the idea that you have a smart car is good. You know, an electric car over a gas car. It's probably a good thing, right? Like, that's good. I think the only really thing we say that's bad is social media. Like, and social media... And technology is wrapped under the social media name. So when people say, oh, technology, we hate that. We don't. We just hate social media. So I think if we could find a way to get away from social media as a whole and get our kids off of that, I think, I think we'd be in a better place today than we were in the early 2000s, late 2000s. Because then you're having more beneficial technology, but it's not involving, like it's not impacting your emotional, mental state. Now, today, we have the best technology ever, but it's impacting your emotional mental state. That's where it's kind of weird. So I think if we were able just to kick off social media, I think we'd be in the best time. And the next 20 years would be great, too. But social media is going to kill it, 100%. Who's to say? Who's to say? But we definitely can go down this rabbit hole. I'd prefer to make it a little bit more... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Appetizing to everybody. Appetizing to everybody. Not everybody, dude, not everybody cares. Like, have you ever noticed that? Not everybody has those types of thoughts. Like, not everybody thinks about, and I only say that, but thinks about thoughts. Like, people just genuinely go about their day, go to work, go, go home, eat a good food, drink a beer, play some video games. And then there are some that, like, genuinely, like, want to get the idea of what it means to live and, like, you know, want to want to do that or like question stuff like social media or question our own human existence or the, the size of the universe. Some people don't. So I think that's funny that you said that more appetizing because honestly, there, there are a crap ton of people that don't care about this stuff that are, will just use it. Who cares? So that's make, like that's the kind of thing I mentioned, like the NPCs like that is there are a, like a, a ginormous sector of our population that is content with going about their day to day and just performing actions no thoughts and I'm not saying that's a bad thing I'm not saying I'm superior to them in any way that's just how they live their life I live my life in a completely different way but yeah let's uh let's take a, a, a step back now make it more appetizing what is something that Marcus Smith would tell himself if he could go back in time four years 
I just heard this the other day. Or not the other day, but I heard this and I love it. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. The quote or phrase, it too shall pass. The idea where... You, like you, 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 you can't ride, ride your highs or ride your lows. You've got to ride the median. Like you've got to be calm, cool, and collective through it all. And that's hard to do. But what I'm getting at is everything will pass. Like you, when you, when you get that job and it's the greatest day of your life and you start making, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and you're doing amazing and you are, you are the man that too will pass. Like you're going to go back down to – you're going to get back down to the median level of just – and it might be a higher standard of living, but it will be a median level. You're going to get back down to feeling a certain way. Your worst days, you get laid off from your job or you get – you know you break up with somebody and your worst days and you think, man, this is hard. Well, that too is going to pass because you've gotten through every one of your worst days and every one of your best days. And I think it's key to understand because everybody always says you get through your worst days. Yes, but you also have gotten through every one of your best days. So it's like we're almost leaving out the other side. And we're almost saying like once it becomes good, it's going to be good forever. No, it's not. Just like how your bad year passed, well, this too shall pass. So I think that's what I would tell you know, five years ago is just stick to the script and this too shall pass. So whenever it gets too hard, it's going to pass. And whenever it gets too good, it's going to pass too. So find that find that line of good and bad and write it out and just stick to the script. And I think that that kind of quote it too shall pass has really kind of made me start thinking about, you know, my highs and my lows in life and thinking, you know, you can't ride both. You got to be in the middle and you got to appreciate both what they are cuz they're going to pass. So I'd say that's that, that's what I would say that 5 years ago. That kind of hits on the idea of this thing called hedonism or this I've heard the philosopher's name. It's something to do with hedonism, but that just talks about like you will always adapt to your situations. I could be on the highest of highs. Two weeks from now, I've adapted to that high, and now it's just back to the the normal levels of where I'm at. I could be yeah. on the lowest of lows, and I continue that on for two weeks, and now I've became accustomed to that, and, I, and this is what I expect. So, do not let your what I would tell myself. I was going to continue on with what you were saying, but that's not what I would tell myself actually. But to continue <laughs> on with what you're saying. Like, the, exactly what you said, I'm just going to paraphrase it for myself, everything you've experienced in life, you will get through. Like, it, it too shall pass. I was trying to refer, or paraphrase that, I can't, that's it's, it's very concise and to the point. Like, everything you do in life, good or bad, you will get through it, and that is a very powerful thing. But Marcus Smith, we've been talking for about an hour and a half now. This is the longest conversation I've had yet. Yeah. It's a great time. Very, very uh, informative, very philosophical. I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed having you on. I love it. I appreciate you having me on. I've been looking forward to this for a couple weeks now. A couple months is. now. Yes. Ever since I heard you started this, I wanted to do it. Well, here we are. We'll mark one off the books. we got another one in the future coming up, hopefully. Just do a little progression of our lives. I like it. I like it. Before we go our separate ways... I would like to share a quote by Alexander Stouch. Knowledge without love inflates the ego and deceives the mind. If you like this podcast, please give my channel a five stars on your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in and until next time.